Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial subjects with interesting people. I'm excited to welcome to the High Noon stage Christopher Rufo. Christopher Rufo is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, as well as a frequent contributor to their quarterly journal, City Journal. He is the director of four PBS films and the journalist behind a series of investigative reporting pieces on the subject of critical race theory that have had an enormous impact on our national discussion. He's become the face of a growing movement against critical race theory in institutions, from so-called diversity trainings in government agencies to race-divided exercises in public schools. What I love so much about this guy and our conversation is that he is the energizer bunny of American optimism. Instead of staring morosely into a martini, Rufo is the guy who's out there exposing, organizing, and just generally getting things done. We talked about all of that work, um, how to organize what now seems to be millions of voices raising the alarm about this pernicious ideology, and why I'm wrong to be such a pessimist about our chances of beating it back. The New York Times had this to say about his work. Rufo's been leading the conservative charge against critical race theory. Last year, during an appearance on Tucker Carlson's Fox News show, he called on Trump to issue an executive order abolishing critical race theory trainings from the federal government. The next day, he told me, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows called him and asked for his help putting an order together. The New York Times did not mean this as praise, but I do. Welcome to High Noon, Christopher Rufo. Good to be with you. So let's start off with this. Um, what is critical race theory and how did it seemingly move so quickly from the faculty lounges of our universities into government agencies, into our K-12 system, um, even into private corporations? Yeah, it, it, it's a big question, an important question. And the really simple explanation is that critical theory or critical race theory, rather, uh, is an academic discipline that takes a look at the intersection between uh, power, race, and social institutions. And the critical race theorists maintain that all American institutions, everything from the Declaration, the Constitution, the legal system, the Bill of Rights, uh, private property, freedom of speech, all of those fundamental building blocks of our government and society are uh, shot through with uh, systemic racism uh, that hasn't changed that has changed uh, not by degree, but by form. Uh, uh, critical race theorists sometimes make the argument that racism now is just as bad as it was 100 or 200 years ago. It's simply become more subtle, uh, more, uh, uh, more deeply uh, buried, uh, and more hidden by camouflage. And this idea, which started as a radical academic idea, very quickly has moved through the institutions. Uh, and I think... Uh, for a couple reasons. One is that uh, it, it's constructed in a way that manipulates uh, Americans' uh, fear, uh, uh, guilt, um, and then also genuine altruism, the desire to do good. And it feeds all of these very unstable emotions for most Americans that has made it almost invulnerable to counterattack. So when the critical race theorists or people that are inspired by critical race theory, whether they're HR programmers or diversity trainers or K-12 curricula designers, um, they feel in a sense powerless to push back against it. Uh, but also, in many cases, they feel emboldened because it's a, a radical ideology that, that serves the gratification of, uh, of a destructive impulse uh, and, and a, a really cynical view uh, into our society. You've really been a, a one-man point of the spear um, on this issue in, in many ways, um, given your investigative journalism work. Uh, but you've also been key to organizing some of the legislative resistance at the state level, I guess also at the federal level with the last administration. Um, and then you've also been coordinating a type of legal response to these kinds of trainings, to the infiltration of this ideology in our schools and government agencies and various other places. I mean, could you explain a little bit about each sort of part of your work and how those pieces fit together into more of a comprehensive pushback against this? Yeah, they're all, um, you know, they're all interlinked. They're all mutually uh, reinforcing. And the, the pieces that you laid out are exactly it. It's first investigative reporting. Um, I, I think a lot of people on the right have thought that if we debate uh, these ideas like critical race theory or critical theory more generally, if we debate them, if we expose the faulty logic and the flawed reasoning uh, in, in a kind of semi-academic debate, uh, that that will solve the problem. Uh, but in that in, in reality, it doesn't work that way. And I think what Americans need to see is not that there's flawed logic or, or bad reasoning. They need to see the damage that is being done to uh, real people 
and the damage that are, is being done to real institutions. So the focus of my investigative reporting has revealed that where it's saying, you know, it's one thing to understand that there is a there's a a, 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 a temptation or a imperative in critical race theory to divide people into oppressor and oppressed. It's another thing to say in Cupertino, California, third grade elementary school teachers are forcing eight-year-olds to deconstruct their racial and sexual identities and then categorize themselves as oppressor and oppressed. It becomes concrete, it becomes tangible, it becomes real, uh, it becomes emotional. And I've released a series of these stories. I did a dozen stories in K through 12 education. I did probably, I think, 10 stories in the federal government, uh, federal agencies last year. Uh, I'm now moving on to uh, corporations. I'm going to be uh, reporting on that in, in the coming week or two and starting a new series. And it gives people a story that provides a launch point for action. And, you know, my stories on education, for example, generated somewhere approximately 250 million media impressions. So this is very concretely changing the entire national conversation um, because I'm just building and building and building this body of evidence. The second thing, uh, or, 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 you know, maybe we can talk about legal and, and legislative, um, is, is really stems from that. It's like a lot of my reporting, to my surprise, frankly, inspired an executive order, inspired legislation, inspired state lawmakers. Uh, and then they bring me in on the backside to to um, uh, to kind of educate uh, lawmakers on what uh, critical race theory is, what damage is being done, what might be a sensible response. And then I can also be then a cheerleader for these bills that are moving through state legislatures. And finally, on the legal front, uh, you know, I've had a, out, a, a kind of outpouring, you know, more than 100 attorneys said, I want to volunteer to fight this in the courts. And I've assembled now a coalition. We filed three lawsuits. I think we'll file another 10 before the year's over, um, we're going to just absolutely rain down lawsuits on institutions that are practicing uh, these forms of neo-racism. And we're not going to stop until we get to the Supreme Court and until we get a very clear precedent that these programs are not only morally and intellectually bankrupt, but they're actually a violation of existing uh, constitutional law. Um, what is the legal theory there that they're, I know that um, you're arguing that they're both a violation of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and that they're a violation of the 14th Amendment. Um, could you maybe expand a little bit on on the outlines of those legal arguments? Yeah, yeah. I mean, th that's essentially right. And, you know, I, I leave it to our, our, our brilliant legal scholars to, to, to pull up the precedent. But in very simple terms, we're, we're fighting on three uh, on, on three fronts, a, a First Amendment on First Amendment grounds, uh, basically saying when public institutions, uh, especially in an educational setting where students are 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 there, they're not they're you know they're compelled to be in school. Uh, on First Amendment grounds, they're compelling speech that violates uh, the right to conscience, that violates people's uh, basic dignity. So uh, the government can't compel speech, uh, especially discriminatory speech. So that's a violation of the First Amendment. We have a case in. Uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, that is uh, looking very good, uh, that is making that argument. Uh, then there's a 14th Amendment argument where you're saying, well, if you, you can't treat people of different uh, racial groups, uh, uh, you can't treat them unequally. You have, you know, people have a, a right to equal protection under the law. And some of these training programs in corporations and government and schools explicitly discriminate and, and treat people uh, different, differently on the basis of race. Uh, so there's a violation of the 14th Amendment. And then the U.S. Civil Rights Act, a similar theory, these programs that perpetuate in racial stereotypes constitute a form of uh, racial harassment and, uh, and, and again, violate the basic tenets of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, I know there's Title VI cases, Title VII cases, uh, depending on the institution. And we feel confident in all three of these arguments. And I I'd like to see all three of them uh, go to the highest court uh, and, and place these very reasonable restrictions on some of these programs that are just, uh, uh, frankly, you know, kind of maniacal and out of control and, uh, and serve no purpose for achieving uh, a broadly held conception of racial justice. They're, they really are toxic, divisive, destructive, cynical, um, all of these things that we want to, uh, you know, all of these adjectives that we'd prefer uh, not to describe our public institutions with. Um, you know, 
so you've mentioned Las Vegas, Nevada and Cupertino, California. Um, have you seen that some of these um, either training programs or incursions into the K-12 system are limited to blue states or blue cities? Because sometimes I get I get pushback from folks and they say, well, that that might be the case in crazy San Francisco, California, Bay Area area where you grew up. I believe you're from the Seattle area, right? Um, that might be the case in these crazy blue cities. Uh, but here um, in, in a rural area or here in a red state, um, you know, this is not so much of a problem. I mean, do you have examples from more moderate or even conservative areas or districts where some of this is nevertheless happening? Yeah, a, a lot. I mean, it, it, it's it's absolutely everywhere. I reported on a story in Springfield, Missouri, where a middle school was forcing teachers to locate themselves on an oppression matrix uh, and then telling you know white male Christians that they were inherently oppressors uh, and then and then you know racial ethnic religious and sexual minorities that they were uh, inherently the oppressed um i know texas just had a big election about this uh in multiple school districts in the state of texas they were pushing a uh, critical race theory on, on onto kids uh, in a very uh, aggressive way um and you know i get emails every day i mean i get hundreds of emails a day sometimes of people all over the country saying oh this is coming to my school district in Kansas or uh, or Illinois or New Hampshire or uh, Arkansas. I mean, truly everywhere. And it's, I think, in part because the graduate schools of education that train teachers and the big t state teachers colleges, um, this is the kind of, this is their main program. This is their main, uh, the main item at the buffet for, for teaching teachers. And a lot of the times, the, the young teachers especially don't even know that there's an alternative. They don't even know that there might be a problem with this. They don't even know that there is uh, anything different because they've been uh, put through an ideological program at the uh, state university systems that that has put this front and center as the primary pedagogical tool um, to use to achieve uh, this idea of social justice. Yeah, one of the things that really stood out to me about that Texas case that you mentioned, um, where where a community really did fight back and organize, and then ended up electing new school board members um, that were opposed to implementing a plan to, um, you know, to to put some of this critical race theory stuff into um, the school district. I I noticed that after they said that it was three times higher, turnout was three times higher in those races than it was normally. And what that three times higher was, was 14%, 14% turnout. Um, you know, this is this has been a problem for a long time in, in school districts. We talk about public schools being democratic in some way, as though they're democratically controlled. But oftentimes that means, you know, four or five, 6% turnout elections that are very easily controlled by a, a, a um, you know, minority view, as long as it's well organized. I mean, is, is that what you found that when when parents actually are made aware, um, you know, what what can parents do if they notice, for example, that their public school is teaching something uh, along these lines, either critical race theory or, or um, a sort of left wing gender ideology is another one that a lot of parents are worried about. I mean, what can parents do in that situation? Yeah, um, I think you're exactly right. And what I've seen in my reporting on ed education in particular is that there are certain institutions within the broader education system that are very organized, that push very hard to achieve control. And uh, these are driven by teachers unions in many cases, driven by uh, public employees who uh, work in you know, the Department of Racial Equity, uh, which are full-time activism roles. Um, so they have their built-in network of teachers and nonprofits and contractors and unions that uh, that have full-time professional activist staff members that can guide the institutions and win elections uh, because most parents are busy. They have their kids and their jobs and their other obligations and uh, don't pay enough attention to these things because education has been looked at as uh, uh, almost like a neutral ground or, okay, they're doing, you know, public school, they're doing, they're doing this and that. Um, that's not true anymore. And I think what happened in Texas is that parents said, hey, wait a minute, uh, you're putting an, putting a, a, an ideology uh, into the classroom that is uh, in direct opposition to the values of a broad and multiracial 
majority of parents, um, and they essentially caught the activists in the act of ideologizing the institutions. And uh, they ran a campaign and they won by 40 points. I mean, they absolutely buried the people. So it shows two things. One is that pay attention to what's happening. And two, if you push back uh, in numbers with some discipline and organization, uh, you can overwhelm these uh, full-time, uh, you know, astroturf uh, activists that uh, feel like public education is their own private ideological domain. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say that education has been considered a, a neutral ground. I mean, um, and, and you mentioned that this is by no means limited to blue states or blue cities. I mean, initially, I think you've said in, in other forums that you found very little interest in this topic um, that is now you know, driving organization in a grassroots way among parents, among citizens in such a, a big way, I think, um, you found very little interest among, let's call it the the, the conservative movement or um, the sort of apparatus associated with that in Washington, D.C. or um, in other places, think tanks, um, uh, like legislative staff, uh, the, the Republican Party, the establishment of the party. And, and even legal legal um, organizations, you, you kind of did not find initially that they really understood how important this issue was. I think you said they were set up to fight economic issues on economic fronts only, um, and and they were unprepared for this kind of cultural battle. Do you think that's still true? Um, do you think that more of these institutions are realizing that this is a really important battle? Or what do you think it says about the right that they were so wholly unprepared for something as critical as a battle over what's taught to our, our future voters, what's taught to our citizens? Yeah, I, I mean, two things. I, I, what you're saying is accurate, an accurate description of what was the reality six months ago. Um, but it's changed a lot and it's changed very fast. Uh, when I first started working on this issue, um, I didn't have very many allies. I mean, it was truly, you know, the first time I went on Tucker to, to, in this part of this ongoing series of reports on critical race theory in the federal government, I, you know, I, I said almost like kind of tongue in cheek a bit, but also serious, um, I'm declaring a one man war against critical race theory in the federal government. And it was not really an exaggeration. It was me uh, and then maybe a couple of other people thinking about this. And and after this kind of took off, I went to some of the institutions and people were excited about it. But I think people on the right and the more institutional right were also uh, scared. Um, people were wary to engage on cultural issues, on racial issues. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's fair to say in broad strokes, but, you know, the right lost the culture war 1.0. Right. I think that's probably fair. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's quite fair. Yeah. Yeah. I think we so, lost uh, wars one, two, three, four, <laughs> five and maybe six. But <laughs> OK, well, well, let's just let's just let's just say 1.0. And uh, and then all of a sudden with the Trump executive order and now this legislation and these lawsuits, people started to realize, oh, wait a minute. Um not only is this intellectually coherent and correct on the merits, but we're making major headway. You know, I, I think Rod Dreher wrote in the American Conservative, he's like wrote this like breathless column. He said, we never win these fights. We always lose. And now here we are and we're winning. And what I've seen on the right is that the one man war that started uh, last fall, you know, last summer, early fall, there are now millions of people that are fighting on this issue. I mean, we ratcheted up the Google trends. It had been flatlining on critical race theory at about zero. Uh, we ratcheted it up to 100, like on, on kind of search intensity or public interest, twice in the last six months. And all of a sudden you have President Trump, uh, Vice, uh, former President Trump, former Vice President Pence, Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Tom Cotton, Senator Tim Scott, state le fifth, you know, 12 state legislatures, uh, you know, Nikki Haley, anyone who wants to be anyone in this more conservative movement and Republican Party electorally, they're all talking about this because they know that it is, uh, it, it is you know, a, a, a winning issue. Uh, and it's also the right thing to do. And I think people are also understanding that this is truly, this ideology is truly a threat, not just to, not just to, you know, working or school, but, but 
in in its actual philosophy is uh, something that really seeks to undermine uh, the fundamentals of American uh, life, American institutional life, uh, American law, American society, in, in a way that it, it's like it's not even relevant to the old dichotomies thinking about black and white or black and you know uh, ethnic or racial minorities more generally. A critical race theory is bad for everyone, and I, I'm actually convinced that it's frankly worst, uh, worst, worst of all for uh, anyone who is down on the income ladder. Um, you know, it's just a disaster of an ideology. It's a kind of zombie resurgence of of, of mid 20th century new Marxism, and uh, Americans are not going to put up with it. And and one thing I I think that I've maybe done uh, uh, successfully is. I've let conservatives know you can fight on this issue, um, and I've given people a sense of courage. And that, to me, is the most important thing that I can do. I can blaze a trail. I can cut through uh, to kind of open up new territories and give people the courage uh, to follow. You know, I I totally agree with you that there's kind of a class element uh, to this and uh, maybe a type of Charles Murray argument where some of this jargon or, or the ideas um, involved are working out quite well for people with PhDs or, or um, people who are some of these folks who are making enormous amounts of money as, as consultants and working in DEI uh, sections of every major corporation. Um, but it's being used against the average American, um, even as a matter of class, right? I, I'm thinking here of, of the episode at Smith College, right? Um, where if you are an employee of the university and you're accused of racism, even without evidence, even though it's not true, even though the investigation might find that, you know, the the situation was misinterpreted, um, you know, you're really on the chopping, chopping block, right? Um, and, and on the flip side, it, it seems like this kind of language or jargon has become a type of class marker or a virtue signal um, to prove that you're of a certain quote-unquote educated class, right? Um, does, does the elite nature of wokeism and critical race theory, do they make it those, those ideologies more or less powerful? Because obviously they're engendering, um, you know, to your point of optimism, um, they are engendering a very broad-based backlash, and yet they still hold the heights of what seems like nearly every institution in American life, right? They, they hold the, the newsroom of the New York Times um, and they, they hold the universities, which they've held for a long time. They, in, they hold most of the bureaucratic institutions, whether those are government agencies right down to public schools. Um, you know, what I, I guess, is it a strength or a weakness um, or both of, of these ideologies that they really do seem to be top down? They really do see be, seem to be um, in use primarily by the elite against those um, who might be lower on the income scale or generally have less cultural power. Yeah, I mean, it obviously, when you control elite institutions, uh, that's an advantage. You're in a position of power. But there are two things that cut against that that give me hope for optimism. One is that, I mean, it's a fake ideology. I, I, I don't I think a lot of the people who are even supporting this and even kind of repeating its slogans and phrases um, don't actually believe it. I think a lot of people are intimidated into repeating it in an almost, um, you know, Soviet or Maoist style uh, rep- call and response with elite institutions where uh, you're supposed to say X, Y, and Z, so we say X, Y, and Z, but privately we're 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 not so sure, and we're not going to actually change our behavior uh, to to align with our publicly professed ideology. I think you get that a lot, where you know you have elites that 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 you know preach all of these values and practice none of them. So in a way, it creates an opportunity for us to uh, not only expose hypocrisy, which I think is like a, almost a waste of time. Uh, um, uh, it's like a sugar rush strategy. But to actually um, use it uh, against people who um, who are saying things that they know are false, um, you're you're automatically you know exposing yourself to some strategic uh, risk by doing so. And, and then I think um, these things can crumble as well. Like when you have a fake ideology that is perpetuated by fake institutions uh, to solve you know uh, you know kind of to solve socially scientifically, social scientifically derived fake problems, right? We have real problems in the United States, including 
uh, you know, racial uh, dis- disparities, uh, you know, kind of uh, if you look at the kind of racial outcomes. But a lot of these two are like class issues where um, increasingly uh, the, the problems of the uh, you know, black working class and the white working class and the Latino working class are much more similar to one another than they are with the elite uh, members from their same racial category. So you have this really, I think, strong ideology in control of institutions, but the foundations of it are so weak uh, that now that we're attacking it, and let's be honest, it's not a lot of people we're attacking it. We're a very small group of people. We don't have big organizations. Uh, we don't have big staff. We don't have universities. We don't have you know, a- any of those uh, institutional powers. And we're absolutely demolishing these people. I mean, it's it's frankly fun and awesome and exciting and an adventure. Uh, and we're giving people a sense that you can tear this this fake uh, building down. Um, and I think we're successfully doing it. I, I, I really sense a shift in momentum. I sense that the critical race theory kind of defenders and, and propagators are, are very much on the defensive uh, and that we're doing real damage to them in almost David versus Goliath power imbalance. And to me, that makes it um, a, a sign that we are uh, success, we're being successful and that we are uh, you know, pursuing the right strategies. So, so let me ask you then a, a cynical Slavic style question. Um, you know, what happens when Goliath really starts to recognize that you're doing damage um, and that some of this pushback is doing damage? Um, you know, it, it seems to me that the way that you're organizing this, which is, is fantastic, this legislative, legal, um, and investigative journalism fronts, plus a, a, a big media presence and, and, um, gathering stories from all over the country. This is, this is the way to organize this. Um, if you believe in one fundamental premise that I'm sort of teetering on, um, which is that if you start to be really seriously successful, all those institutions that we just talked about are going to still play by the rules. But what we saw in the last four years of the Trump administration, whether people love him or hate him, has been, I think almost the theme of the Trump administration has been institutions stepping outside of what have been um, you know, considered r- the rules of the road um, for American institutions for you know decades, in some cases, centuries. So just to list a few examples of what I'm talking about, right, we, we had the an important election story published by a, a well-regarded newspaper, the New York Post, yanked off of social media just a couple um, couple weeks before an election. Uh, we had government agencies leaking sometimes false information that resulted or, or um, edited information and that then resulted either in media firestorms or sometimes in the <laughs> actual impeachment charges. Um, we saw intelligence agencies uh, really involve themselves in, a, in an overtly political way into the political process in a way that was wildly inappropriate, or at least would be considered wildly inappropriate. And I feel like they all did that because they felt, you know, uh oh, this guy, love him or hate him from the, you know, sort of uh, policy perspective or even personal perspective, this guy is really going to append the the power cart here. Um and we better we better make sure that that doesn't happen. I mean, what what makes you um, you know think that this if, if we if we call what you're building maybe an army uh, metaphorically, of course, uh, and an army to oppose uh, these institutions and the ideology that they're pushing, you know, is it an army we need or an insurgency like a guerrilla insurgency? Because what makes you so confident that they won't? find a way to disappear all of this stuff, that, that um, they won't find a way to step outside of the boundaries of, of what was considered appropriate behavior for American institutions and just find a way to sort of cut off this movement at the knees. Well, I, I think I disagree maybe in a fundamental way with the, the premise of your objection. Uh, I think that I, I don't think that the last four years showed that at all. I, I take away a, a totally different lesson. I mean, the, the fact is, is that even with social media censorship, which I, which I disapprove of, right? I think it's bad. Um, Americans have so much more access to information now than 20 years ago or 40 years ago. You have Twitter, Facebook, blogs, podcasts, websites. 
Um, it used to be 30 years ago that you'd watch ABC, NBC, CNN, Fox News, that's it. Um, critical race theory would never have made the news uh, in, in a lot of cases without some of these new tools. So I think even with things like the New York Post censorship, Trump censorship, we still have an information environment that is vastly more uh, abundant than it has ever been in our history. And their ability to reach people with new ideas is still greater than we've ever had it. Second, yeah, the federal government, bureaucracy, intelligence services, career bureaucrats fought against uh, Trump administration. I mean, that's happened forever. Look at Nixon. I mean, look at, you know, even the founding. I mean, look at when we had a tiny bureaucracy comparatively 100 years ago, 150 years ago. That's that's politics in Washington, D.C. Um, and then look at Trump. I mean, I think if we're really honest, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's easy to blame all of these people taking Trump and, 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 you know, unfairly maligning him and giving him negative media coverage. But I mean, I think he he kind of blew it, too. Right. He bears a lot of responsibility. He had two years where he had the presidency in both houses of Congress and he wanted to pass a corporate tax cut. I mean, he came into office with a certain set of priorities, but didn't actually end up pursuing them in a way in a way that was really sophisticated. I, I almost feel like looking back, it almost seems like they got into office and they're like, oh, God, now what do we do? And then they look to the kind of establishment Republicans in Congress to set the agenda. Um, and all of those things add up to me to opportunity, which is we need to have the intellectual framework. We need to have the, uh, uh, the, the kind of ready-made plan next time that power shifts here are our priorities. Here's how we're going to get it done. Here's how we're going to fight the bureaucracy. Here's the communication strategy that is not going to, you know, fall, you know, kind of fall into the media's traps. Uh, here's an actual way to, to, to get these, get these important, um, important things done in a way that is more sophisticated, more analytical, more rigorously planned, and then better executed at every step of the way. I still think all that's very possible. And uh, I, I, you know, I voted for Trump in 2020. I obviously wanted him to win. Disappointed that he didn't. But, you know, things shift. People lose elections. And 2022, 2024, a lot of things can happen. So I, I, I'm, I'm very much optimistic at the federal level uh, for the years to come. Um, speaking of that plan that you want to, to make sure is in place, if we get another political opportunity then to execute on that plan, it seems like uh, to me that your very well coordinated and sort of holistic work on this, the the integrating the legislative, the legal, the the uh, media angle, all of that, um, and the, the state and federal levels, um, this has been very much the exception to the rule in terms of of um, pushing back against this dominant narrative. And I think that's in part why it's been so successful. Your work has been so successful and has notched real wins um, in a way that. You know, a lot of a lot of folks uh, worked their whole lives in a particular issue and, and never um, never managed to notch the kind of wins that you have in a relatively short period of time. Um, you know, and, and, and if you are right, that people are waking up to the dangers of this in, in larger and larger numbers. Um, how do we how do we organize and communicate a message that is perhaps not the same, but at least all marching in the, in the same um, general direction, having our efforts efforts march in the same general direction. Because it seems to me, because this is the dominant narrative in our institutions, that a lot of the pushback so far, and maybe that's changing, has been somewhat scattered. You know, we're, we're ideologically different, right? Um, I, I, I know that, uh, at least until recently, you still consider yourself either moderate or, or somewhat on the liberal side of the spectrum, um, conservatives obviously oppose this for their own reasons. There's elements of the left that oppose it. Um, we're all sort of a, a grab bag and, and individuals oppose one aspect of this or another. Um, we're, we're kind of in the um, dictionary definition of the sense uh, of this word. We're reactionary, right? We're reacting to this dominant narrative rather than organizing as you have and sort of um, you know, in, in an organized way, advancing the ball on all different levels. I mean, how do we get the in entirety of this movement, if you want to call it a movement, um, to to coordinate in the way that you have with your work. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it um, it is a movement. It's become a movement to my great surprise. I never thought I would be leading any kind of movement, uh, but uh, you know, that's what's happened. And 
I don't know. I mean, I don't want to draw, you know, too much uh, from my own kind of personal experience with this, but I think some things that have been helpful, um, lessons that could perhaps be applied to more more organizations is that institutions, conservative institutions, think tanks, policy shops, you know, political organizations, et cetera, um, have to like really rapidly modernize how they communicate um, and also... Um, also have to, to, to organize in a way that is less bureaucratic, less uh, uh, institutional, uh, if you want to repeat the word, uh, and, and more uh, high risk, more venture focused, more, um, more like small startups that are focused on issues um, and, and, and actually thinking about returns and trying to say, all right, what is the minimum amount of work I can do to achieve the maximum results? And I think we're going to need a lot of internal soul searching and reform in our institutions because that's not really, you know, that's not really the, the model for a lot of people. But I think it's a model that shifts with um, communications technology, with how media is structured, with how stories are told. Um, we really have to get much more sophisticated. And, you know, the, the, this little project I've done, I'm very narrowly focused on one thing, you know, been working on it for a while, like a little sh short of a year. I'll probably do another year on it and then move on. But, you know, it's been two people. It's been, you know, me and a research assistant. And that's it. Very small budget, you know, tiny team that makes partnerships with other institutions. And I just think that's got to be how we think about it is how can we deploy these small teams that are focused on generating um, maximum results and then networking those small teams in, within a broader infrastructure. And uh, luckily, on, on the positive side, I think a lot of conservative institutions are starting to realize that, starting to embrace it, starting to think in this different way and are getting excited about it. Um, so I think that we should encourage reform, encourage adaptation, encourage advancement, encourage experimentation, encourage risk-taking. Um, and how can we reinvent, you know, conservative institutions, think tanks, etc., in order to actually win and get results and move the ball forward and, uh, and put out something that is exciting for people to participate in, um, that people can be proud of, of, of associating with, and people feel a sense of thrill and excitement uh, a sense of uh, risk taking and adventure, um, and and fun, and I think also fun. We got to enjoy it too, and that's one thing that I think is an attitudinal question. Where um, it should be more fun for you to join our team of ragtag rebels than their team of cynical, pessimistic, you know, ill-fitting suited, you know, bureaucratic, uh, you know. Uh, jibber jabberers that repeat these buzzwords incessantly like uh you know computer programs i mean we have an easy enemy to fight uh and let's cultivate an identity and a sense of uh, a sense of fraternity or um or, or solidarity uh that is that is that is inspiring for people that calls people to courage and uh and actually then has fun uh in 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 its victories do you think that your background as a filmmaker um, plays into you seeing the issues this way and, and looking at how to really utilize media, how to make it fun, how to you know create a sense of solidarity, what you're saying, uh, how to tell these stories in a concrete way that still you know inspires people to be courageous and act? I mean, do you think that your background um, in, 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 uh, as a filmmaker has, has helped you um, understand how to do that? Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, and, you know, sure, like, did I learn a lot about media, communication, storytelling, character, emotion, uh, narrative, all of those things are kind of the, the tool set of filmmaking, um, uh, you know, production, uh, uh, you know, visual communications. I think those are all tools that helped. But one, one thing that was great about my former filmmaking career um, that I've kind of let go of at this point is that I got to actually go out into the world and seek that adventure that we're talking about. You know, I graduated from Georgetown. A lot of my colleagues went or my, my classmates were investment banking or consulting or government service or 
or law school or whatever. Now they're and all in DEI. Capitol Hill, DEI, whatever. I mean, all of it, right? And and I was I was so like I, I just was horrified by that path. I just rejected it, couldn't handle it. So um I set out on like an actual adventure. I traveled to, you know, sixty plus countries around the world. I made films in conflict and post conflict zones. I traveled with, you know, nomadic tribesmen. Um I I did I mean, looking back, actually, a lot of dangerous stuff too. But, but truly, and at uh, pushing myself to the limits of that experience, and consequently, you come back and you're, you know, I'm working on critical race theory. This seems like kind of not even a big deal, not not scary, not uh, not a lot of conflict, not very dangerous. I'm like writing and talking on TV, um, but I think that it has that it requires that same spirit of 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 entering new territory and going into the uh, going into fights where no one has fought it before, or or uh, going into intellectual territory where you know that has been dominated by another set of people who are opposed to you, um, and then trying to navigate that. And uh, I think that attitude and that that spirit has 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 served has served well has done has has gotten people out of the rut of what is politics? What is think tanking? You know, is it writing the, you know, the 87 footnotes in a policy paper, um, you know, and then just lighting it on fire? Um, no, um, we can actually re-envision how this whole process works and how we attain uh, influence in the intellectual and creative and political process. Yeah, one of the reasons I'm so proud to work with IWF is I think they, that we think exactly along those lines. We're not we, we do have um, some some very short white papers, um, but we are really geared at putting out that information in any way possible, talking out through the media and um, really trying to convince. I think too much of the the political sphere um, really is is often writing or speaking or um, you know performing for a, a group of people who's maybe a few hundred people and those people have a lot of influence. Um, but but what can happen as we've seen is th- that group of people can get so wildly out of touch with what problems are actually on the front lines. You know what what problems are actually confronting the average American. What is actually sort of shaping the future of our country um, in a much more substantive way, as you point out, you know, what did the Republican Party do with two years of, of holding every, um, you know, every office of power in, in the federal government? Well, we got corporate tax cuts. I, look, I like more money. I like keeping more of my own money. I have nothing against tax cuts. I'm all in favor of tax cuts. But if you look at the trajectory of the country today, you know, what the, the tax rates are, um, are not going to directly impact uh, what seems to me to be much more existential issues that we're we're grappling with in the culture. Um, so, do you do you think that like uh, so you, all that traveling that you did um, and and all of of um, the the situations that you found yourself in did did it give you two things one an appreciation for uh, the American system uh, that you think perhaps obviously the the folks in the um the critical race theory world or, or uh, ibram kendi says we're stamped from the beginning right we um our institutions have always been shot through with racism in fact institutions like due process or um you know the bill of rights these these are just covers for um you know is what is essentially in his view white power white supremacist power um did did traveling around um, the world and, and engaging with all kinds of different people, both at home and abroad, did, did it give you uh, maybe a sense of perspective on the American system and how we are different from the rest of the world? Yeah, it, de- it, it definitely did. I mean, you spent a lot of time in Europe. I'm a European citizen um, by birth. And so you can compare it to Europe, which is like this vaunted, you know, Europeans do everything better if you believe some people. And it's like, well, there's there's trade-offs. The European system has some advantages, some disadvantages compared to the U.S. And then you travel to stuff like Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and Turkmenistan. And they're the most, like, crushed, depressing, uh, just just absolutely dreary and, and, and awful uh, governing systems. And you, you start to think, oh, wow, there's actually a wide range of outcomes for societies. Um, or, you know, you travel in, in China and see the Chinese system. And... So I think, in a sense, 
yes, gives you an appreciation for the American system. But I also did a lot of traveling within the United States. I did a film for PBS where I spent years in America's poorest neighborhoods and cities. And so you get a sense of how rough life can be in the United States, which is another perspective that I have. And really, I think what motivates me in, in a large extent on critical race theory is, you know, I spent five years directing a film for PBS, about three years of field work in one of America's poorest white working class neighborhoods, America's poorest uh, urban black neighborhoods, and one of America's poorest Latino and multiracial neighborhoods in Stockton, California. And I got to know people very well. It's like I'm there when uh, I'm there, you know, in the filming the casket closing when someone's son gets murdered. Uh, I'm there at the birth of a ex-felon's child. I'm there in all of these really intimate moments um, in people's lives and really getting to know these communities, really getting to know policy, really getting to know uh, people's stories. And and then you compare all those things that I learned, again, across all racial groups, um, across all the largest racial groups in the United States, and, and getting a sense of what do they think is the problem, what's, what's kind of preventing them from achieving their potential, what do they hope as a solution, or what, what do they hope, what problems are they hoping to solve and how. And then you look at critical race theory, which is so detached from the experience of actual poor and marginalized people of all racial backgrounds. I mean, it's just preposterous. It seems like almost like a moral crime that people who claim to speak on behalf of the poor, the dispossessed, the racial minority are, are, are putting together a set of analyses and then solutions that are so detached from actual life. It could only be written in a cloistered academic environment that in my view, and I've written this in a paper for Heritage Foundation, if these solutions were implemented, and to the extent that they are implemented, are actually a disaster for the people that they're designed to help, um, which gives me just a, a sense of passion about this because, you know, opposing, paradoxically, right? I mean, it's, a, it's kind of almost strange to say, but opposing critical race theory is protecting the poorest and most vulnerable people in the United States. I believe that 100%. Um, well... Thank you so much uh, for joining on that note. I don't think we can we can top that. I'll just ask you one final question that's really been the theme of this podcast um, and something that you do so well. You know, how do we get more people to speak out on these issues? How do we get more people to to run for school board? How do we get more people um, to write letters to their their schools or um, you know to push back against di- diversity training, so called diversity training in work? I mean, um, if you're right, and we we are we have a, a majority or at least a strong um, number of millions and millions of people across the um, across the American political landscape, it seems to me there are kind of three groups of people that were we're trying to reach one are people um, who might not know this is a problem yet, right? Um, there still are folks, even though in our our world, um, of course, everybody is already aware of this in large part thanks to your work. Um, but there are still lots of people who are are taken in by um, you know nice sounding words like equity, for example, as opposed to equality. So there's that group of people we're trying to reach. There are people we're trying to persuade who are aware of this, but may agree with some of the arguments of the left, but perhaps have some doubts about how extreme it has gotten. And then there are the folks who are, I think the largest group, which are the folks who know that this is wrong. They know that it's dangerous, but they are simply afraid to speak out. 65% of Americans now say they, they hide some aspect of their political views. We're very much cultivating this sort of private, and this really does remind me of places like the Soviet Union, um, where we have people cultivating uh, sort of private objections, um, but repeating, as you say, in public and in their jobs, certain nostrums that they feel they must to continue to put food on the table um, for their families and to not be abandoned by their social group, their friends, their job, and so on. I mean, how do we inspire more of those people to, to risk speaking out? And I realize it's very easy for, um, you know, for someone like me to say, I'm, I'm literally, I work, I'm fortunate enough to work at an institution like IWF where they want me to speak out, right? Um, I'm not going to get fired for saying the things that I've said today. Um, but how, how do we, we shift the landscape around these folks to make it more possible for them to be able to speak out. 
Yeah, I, I, I think the answer is always by demonstrating what you would like to see. And, uh, and I think that people are starting to speak out with each example. Um, and, you know, I, I think we're starting to see political leaders speak out um, because there's some of us that have gone first. And now what I think is really exciting is uh, seeing people within institutions speak out, often at great cost. You know, you have, um, you know, Jody Shaw at Smith College or Paul Rossi at, I believe, Grace Church School. You have all of these people um, who are filing lawsuits, writing op-eds, speaking out, sacrificing their jobs in some cases, uh, taking a big risk. Uh, and doing that will inspire more people. And every time we do that, we lower the cost, right? We we create a virtuous cycle of this behavior. And, you know, I've accepted that most people can't speak out. You know, if you're 50 years old, you're nearing retirement, you have a mortgage and kids and, 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 and you just, if you speak out and get destroyed, it would truly harm so many people around you. We have to offer protection for people like that on their behalf and not be disappointed that they won't speak out. But we have to also remember that you only need 1% of people to speak out. I mean, if you can get 1% of people to speak out, everything changes. And I think we're getting there. I think we are building up to that. And and people who are speaking out are actually getting rewarded in many cases. Um, so I, I think it really just starts from demonstrating that courage and modeling that courage and then rewarding that courage. And then institutionally supporting people who demonstrate those uh, virtues that we want to see. Um, so we can turn some of these... Um, sacrifices or risks or 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 problems we can actually extend some form of protection or 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 uh reward uh, to those people who have taken that chance and um i I, th I think it's already happening and uh you know this ideology that we're fighting is so disconnected from reality um i don't think it's going to be frankly that difficult to dislodge um in the coming years Christopher Rufo, thank you so much for joining us on High Noon. Where can people find more of your work and how can they help contribute to it? Yeah, you can find me at Real Chris Rufo on Twitter or you can go to my website, uh, ChristopherRufo.com. That's ChristopherRufo.com. Uh, I have this really cool thing where you can contribute $5, $10, $20 a month to support uh, my work, uh, to get my newsletter, uh, to stay up to date. Um, so uh, that's much appreciated. That's been something that's been really fun. Uh, to engage with people, to, to, to meet people and get their support. So um, if you're interested in that, just go to my website. Um, listeners, I hope that you will do exactly that. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of High Noon. You can find High Noon anywhere you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Smash that subscribe button, please, uh, or even better, leave us a review. You can also send comments or questions for the show to Inez Stepman at IWF.org. Till then, be brave, and I'll see you next time on High Noon.